Hello, you're listening to the Cambridge American History Seminar Podcast. Good for you. This is our 28th episode and technically the 27th in our series of brief conversations with academics who come to present at our weekly seminar. But who's keeping count? I'm Lewis DeFreitz, I'm a PhD student at Sydney Sussex College and I'm excited to present you with another interesting interview today, but first some administrative news. It may sound like deja vu to some listeners, but in line with the upcoming industrial action undertaken by the University and College Union, or UCU, the subject group has taken a decision to postpone all seminars between now and the start of next term, i.e. in late April. That means no podcast between now and then either. Papers scheduled to take place in the last few weeks of this term will be rescheduled for a later date. That means that this is the last you'll hear from us for a while, so make the most of it. On that note... This week's presenter is Mario Del Perro, who is an Associate Professor of History at Sciences Po in Paris. Professor Del Perro is a diplomatic and foreign policy historian of the United States and Europe in the 20th century, with a particular focus on the Cold War. He has published widely in English and Italian, including, and I'm going to give the titles in translation where applicable here, Empire and Liberty, the United States and the World 1776-2011, that was published by La Terza in 2011, The Eccentric Realist, Henry Kissinger and the Shaping of American Foreign Policy, published by Cornell University Press in 2009, and that's available in both English and Italian. Spying and Betraying, Behind the Scenes of the Cold War, published by Feltrinelli in 2011. And the article, American Pressures and Their Containment in Italy during the Ambassadorship of Claire Booth Luce, 1953-1956, and that's published in Diplomatic History in June 2004. Professor Del Perro is also a keen blogger, uh, a frequent writer and contributor for Italian Europe, Sky News and Italian Public Radio, and he's also the convener of the joint LSE and Sciences Po International History Research Seminar. The paper he presented to the Cambridge American History Seminar represents somewhat of a break from his uh, broad spanning work on political strategy and shifts focus to a small community of 10 American evangelicals who moved to Italy in the years immediately following the end of the Second World War. The paper he presented is titled In the Shadow of the Vatican. Professor Del Perro spoke about the paper with uh, Christopher Schaefer, a first-year PhD student working on Franco-American intellectual contacts and communities in the 20th century on Monday afternoon. Um, So, Mario, your new project is a microhistory of Pentecostal missionaries from Texas in Italy after World War II. And the book is under contract from the mm. University of Cambridge Press. Mm-hmm. So tell me, um, what is this chapter about that you're presenting tonight at the American History Seminar? Uh, it's the opening chapter of the book uh, I'm working on. And in this chapter, I kind of you know, flesh out the, the, the beginning of this uh, uh, mission, uh, uh, of this uh, missionary enterprise launched by a group of Texan evangelicals uh, from an evangelical church, the Church of Christ, in Lubbock, uh, North uh, uh, West Texas, uh, it's a group of brothers, and the three part, three of the pastors were uh, were brothers. One of them uh, was a GI in Italy during World War Two, a uh, member of the the Mountain Division, a Sky Trooper, uh, and he convinced uh, his uh, eldest uh, brother, a pastor in the local Church of Christ, to set up and launch this mission close to Rome. 
Uh, they were very naive. They entered the country with uh, tourist visas, uh, which they soon overstayed. Uh, and they were moved by a strong, one could say, virulent uh, anti, anti-Catholicism. So they ran into troubles with uh, the Catholic Church, with the Italian government, and that's the beginning of a very interesting, from my perspective, uh, story which affected U.S.-Italian relations, which is highly revealing of how religion could influence, shape, and inform U.S. foreign policy, uh, which tells us a lot about Italy's constitutional history, because at the end they they became the tools uh, to further the cause of religious freedom in Italy and the final application of some articles of the new uh, Republican Constitution of Italy. And it's also a story which uh, touches upon uh, questions related to U.S. politics because congressional members uh, from the Texan delegation, the two fairly influential Texan uh, uh, senators, Connolly and LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, were involved. So there are many, many different layers in this story, which is a micro-history, which, as all good micro-histories, tends to be revealing of, you know, a larger and more significant uh, uh, picture. So, so how did you come upon this uh, this story? And after books about almost larger-than-life figures like Henry Kissinger and, and broad, sweeping stories of, of, of American history, how did you decide on micro-history? Uh, by accident. That's basically the essence of micro-history. You bump by accident into marginal, overlooked, neglected, in the good old times, subaltern figures, which is what happened to me. But actually, uh, uh, while working on my PhD dissertation and first book back in the previous millennium, I, which was a fairly conventional, if you will, solid but conventional political and diplomatic history of U.S.-Italian relations in the early Cold War, so I was looking at usual, you know, usual topics, the Atlantic Alliance, the Marshall Plan, the European Defense Community, and so forth and so on. I mean, the book was about, the dissertation was about U.S. interference in Italian politics. I kept accidentally, I kept bumping into these documents uh, uh, on this story. So I did what we used to do in the good old times before electronic devices and iPhones and the likes. I photocopied, I Xeroxed a couple of boxes of documents, which I then stored and completely forgot about. Then I moved to Sienspo in 2013 and I left my uh, my house uh, where I was living. I mean, there was a professional, personal dimension in leaving my house. And in retrieving my stuff, I came across those two boxes. Uh, so I decided to, to do some extra archival research in Rome at the archives of the Ministry of Interior, the Office for Religious Affairs. And there was a lot, a lot of materials on that. The Italian, the archive of the Italian Foreign Ministry. And again, and the research, you know, it built uh, upon what I was finding in French archives. The, the, the French ambassador to, to, the, to the Holy See, to the state of the Vatican, was Vladimir Dormesson, a big shot, and he covered uh, uh, the question uh, even in his personal diary. And then I came across, you know, 
personal papers. I, I went to Lubbock to meet with the patents. I convinced them to donate the papers to the, to the archive of Texas Tech, the local university. So the story became larger and larger. Uh, the archival mass of documents less and less manageable. And the original idea of, you know, writing an article eventually became something bigger and, and it became a book project. And Cambridge UP liked it and, and here I am. Well, let's talk about the actors in this story. So uh, starting on the Italian side, um, can we talk a little bit about the Vatican and the Italian state? Um, so going back a, a few decades before this happened, what was the effect of the Lateran Accords on church-state relations? And then in what way did that change, or didn't it, after the fall of a fascist state? Then? Well, basically, the 1929 uh, uh, Accords uh, 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 recognized uh, uh, the state of the Vatican, uh, Catholicism, as the religion of the state. It granted several privileges to the state of the Vatican. It, in a way, ended a dispute uh, between the Italian state uh, and the Holy See, which uh, dated back to the to the to the uh, uh, independence of, of Italy, and it was a way for for the for the Mussolini for the fascist uh, uh, regime to establish uh, good relations uh, with the state of the Vatican, which was uh, a political diplomatic, of course, uh, uh, priority. Uh, fast forward to the collapse of the regime. Uh, the agreements were incorporated into the Italian constitution. It was a very controversial, controversial decision. The Communist Party was instrumental in, in reaching that compromise. But at the same time, in the Italian constitution, there were several uh, articles on the freedom of religion and, and freedom of speech, which in theory should have granted uh, greater uh, 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 liberties uh, to other non-Catholic uh, uh, religions. And, and furthermore, uh, uh, religious freedom was also mentioned in the Italian, in the Italian-American uh, bilateral uh, peace uh, uh, treaty. Uh, however, tension ensued, uh, and that's the tension I very much uh, focus on. What's interesting in the story I'm telling, and by the way, uh, the, the Vatican Archive will open in three weeks the secret Vatican archive for the period 1939-1958. A lot of people are excited because it means that we will finally have documents on, on the Pope and the Nazi regime. And my excitement is of a different sort because that's the key archival piece I was missing. I was able to look at the Vatican, the positions of, of the Vatican via other sources, the Italian Ministry of Interior, the personal papers of some highly influential uh, American uh, 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 cardinal, like, like Cardinal Spellman from New York, Archbishop Bishop Spellman from New York. Um, so that's, that's very important. So back to the state of the Vatican, the state of the Vatican pressured the Italian government and found uh, in the some sectors of the Italian Christian Democratic Party a very receptive uh, uh, audience pressured the Italian government to keep in place the fascist legislation which limited uh, the possibilities 
for uh, non-Catholic uh, uh, religious groups, especially for foreigners, uh, which had no previous established presence in the peninsula, limited the possibilities for them to engage in missionary activities. So that's part of my story is, of course, the story of those Vatican pressures on the Italian state and how the Italian government, the Italian state dealt with those pressures. Uh, I think I think most of us who don't know as much about Italy think of, of Italy as traditionally very monolithically Catholic, but because it provides some context for the situation of American Pentecostals and also because it comes up a few times in this chapter, can you just sketch for us the history of the Waldensinians um, in Italy and its relationship with the Catholic Church? Well, it's, uh, the, the Waldensians, uh, it's a Protestant uh, group, uh, uh, fairly active uh, in Italy, Switzerland, and France, uh, which established very early on a presence in the northwest uh, of uh, uh, Italy, um, particularly in this valley, which is one hour northwest of Turin. It's called the, the Pellice Valley. The main, the main town is Torre Pellice. The Waldensians are a small group, but fairly influential. A, because they are very liberal, they are, I mean, fairly well established in some Italian cities, uh, Florence uh, overall. And, uh, and second, they are very well connected to a broader transnational Protestant community. For example, the World Council of Churches, uh, the main ecumenical uh, organization based in Geneva, have all, has always uh, had in the Waldensians the uh, the, its main Italian partner uh, interlocutor. So it's a fairly influential, small but fairly influential uh, Protestant group um, uh, with a strong connection as part of a broader transnational web and therefore with a strong connection also with the Anglo-American world. As a matter of fact, the father of American studies in Italy was a Waldensian, oh, Valdo Spini, uh, the name Valdo means Waldensians uh, in Italian is Valdesi, Valdo Spini, uh, 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 basically, uh, Giorgio Spini, sorry, the father of Valdo Spini basically founded American studies, created American studies uh, uh, in Italy. And uh, the Waldensians, as I said, they are fairly uh, influential, part of a small Protestant elite with a long tradition in, in Italy. Um, and, and how did, um, what was the typical Catholic response to them, particularly in the middle of the 20th century? Um, no, uh, the, the Waldensians were, were extremely well integrated in the Italian community. I mean, there was a major case uh, 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 at the University of Catania uh, if I'm not mistaken, in the late 40s or early 50s, because the, 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 the chair uh, uh, in, at the University of Catania for the study of Christianity was initially given to a Waldensian, and that provoked a harsh reaction of the Catholic Church. But there are small episodes. Uh, the Waldensians, as I said, very small group, very well integrated with a long history. The problem was posed not by the Waldensians, but by more radical and theologically, how shall I put it, um, uh, 
participative form of, uh, of uh, Protestantism, and I think in particular of the Pentecostals in the South, or small evangelical groups like the Texan missionaries, a, because they had a very aggressive, uh, very rough, anti-Catholic attitude and behavior. Mm-hmm. B, especially the Pentecostals in the deep south, in the regions of Sicily and Calabria, they became fairly influential and they were considered to be a major threat by uh, the Catholic Church because of their success in proselytizing, in challenging you know, the Catholic institutions, in relying also on transatlantic links and connections. Many of them had learned of Pentecostalism as uh, immigrants uh, to, the, to the US and they had brought it back to Italy with a fairly interesting kind of you know, transatlantic religious slash cultural transfer. Okay, and so moving to the American side then, um, who are the actors there? Um, which part of the United States did they come from? Um, was their sort of socioeconomic background um, and, and then religious background? Well, exactly was the Church of Christ? So the Church of Christ is an, it's non-denominational, so uh, it's, a, it's, it's a broad network of churches uh, loosely affiliated with each other and based primarily in a portion of the Bible Belt, so to speak, which goes from Nashville uh, uh, all the way to northwest Texas uh, to Lubbock. Um, They engaged in missionary, international overseas uh, missionary activities uh, uh, post-World War II. And they were part and parcel, we could say, of this you know, broader discovery of the world by the evangelicals. And they were part of and parcel of this, um, one could say, politicization of U.S. evangelicals. They became more actively involved in politics. And they, we became more actively involved in missionary activities and, if you will, in foreign policy itself. Now, to do so, the, the non-denominational issue became problematic because you need resources, you need coordination, you need organization, you need to work together. And as a matter of fact, there was a a deep, strong controversy within the church on whether to do it and how doing that, how engaging in missionary activities would alter, modify the non-denominational nature uh, of the church. So much so that when my missionaries ran into troubles, uh, uh, some people in the church basically argued they had deserved it by betraying the non-denominational nature of the church. They had deliberately put themselves and the church in danger. So it was within the church, uh, uh, there was a significant uh, controversy over over missionary activities and over the forms of coordination uh, uh, that missionary activities uh, seem to impose. So, so socioeconomically, they were, I assume, not as well educated. It seems like their their general experience of, of the world was limited and only really occurred because of World War II. Fairly limited, one could say, and you can you can see that in the naivete uh, that moved and formed uh, uh, their uh, their actions uh, in in uh, in Italy. Uh, I mean, they had gone to you know religious schools in 
California or Texas uh, itself. Uh, the, the, the they had discovered, in the case of one of the the, the Payden uh, brothers, uh, Harold, they had discovered Italy thanks to the war. But you know, the war experience was a form of internationalization and discovery of the world for so many Americans. Uh, uh, not not just that. Yeah. So there's these military metaphors that recur as well that come out in this first chapter um, that were used by the Church of Christ missionaries. Um, so you not only have the World War II invasion that allows them to discover, um, but then they, they use biblical language about how they're going to, to conquer yeah. Italy back um, for, for Christ. Well, so uh, what should we make of this martial language um, that's, that's used by the American missionaries in the early post-war period? It's a bit of inevitable, I think, given the, 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 the proximity and the chronological proximity to the experience of the war. It's a bit of inevitable, given that they were moved by a hyper-nationalist, if you will, logic. Uh, and uh, it was a bit of inevitable, uh, uh, finally, given how they lived and perceived religion in a very, you know, uh, totalizing way, if I, if I, if I may say so. Um, so, um, a martial language was used because they perceived themselves as part of the liberators. They explicitly, and there are some vivid images, they explicitly tied what they were doing to uh, what U.S. soldiers did. Uh, so the liberation of Italy was not yet completed. Italy needed a religious liberation to complete the material and military liberation brought by the war, and they were there to complete that liberation. So they represented themselves as, you know, pastors, social workers, but somehow, you know, even God's soldiers, if I may use this expression. And usually this idea of, of, of the Amer spreading of American ideals um, does go along with certain idea of Protestant missionary work or whatever, but another thing that goes along with that traditionally is the idea of commerce and the spread of, of, of of free markets. Mm. Was there any aspect that was more commercial in this in this case, or was it really purely religious? Um, there were an entrepreneurial dimension, not necessarily commercial, but uh, the success of the mission was, you know, measured via some, you know, clearly defined quantitative indicators: fundraising, uh, converts. Uh, orphans who were not really orphans, but were, they were welcomed in the orphanage and so forth and so on. And the leader, uh, the eldest uh, 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 brother, uh, uh, Klein, he immediately began to do a back and forth between the U.S. and Italy to promote what they were doing to raise funds but also to promote himself and become, how shall I put it, an evangelical entrepreneur. Uh, uh, the Church of Christ of, uh, of Klein Payden never developed into a mega church of sort, but he set up uh, uh, a Bible institute, an international school, other missions outside Italy. So Italy was for him, one could say, and for other evangelical missionaries, the springboard 
to let's say a sort of you know success mm-hmm. in in say, in the broad and highly competitive domain of evangelical activism yeah. so uh, while I was reading the, the chapter um, another uh, famous phrase about um, about war came to mind and that is a uh, helmet von Molke the elders uh, statement that no battle plan ever survives first contact with the enemy mm-hmm. so why don't you tell us about what happened once the these Texas uh, missionaries uh, first got established in Italy and began their religious invasion of the country so they they set up the mission in a fairly catholic area the area of the so-called uh, roman castles castelli romani the main city is frascati uh, there and they began you know preaching uh proselytizing organizing open air meetings uh, uh, without proper authorizations and so forth and so on uh and the local priest urged also by by the state of the Vatican, by the Catholic hierarchies. The local priest uh, reacted harshly, mobilized people, interrupted those open-air meetings, and so forth and so on. And brawls ensued, uh, violence. Uh, on this, we have, you know, the documents of the of the missionaries, the documents of the Italian police. The Italian police uh, 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 often minimized uh, the level of violence, but violence there was, and they were often attacked. And in one case, which became a cause célèbre, uh, in the U.S., they claimed to have been stoned by by the crowd, by a mob led by the local priest. They had been attacked. They had to run for their, you know, safety, uh, jumping on their jeeps. They had two jeeps, which also, you know, kind of struck the imagination of the Italians, seeing these, you know, fairly expensive cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 and they had to run for their safety. I don't know if also for their lives, but it became a big issue. And they claim to have been stoned. Stoning, of course, evokes, you know, biblical images. Mm-hmm. So it yeah, was, they ha- but they were attacked. That's for sure. They suffered physical violence. The Italian members of the church were discriminated. Mm-hmm. And there were strong pressures. You can see documents from the Vatican hierarchies to the Italian Ministry of Interior, uh, urging the Italian Ministry of Interior to take action against them. So discrimination there was, and they suffered from it. And so what was the fallout then of, of these attacks and, and then the diplomatic um, So they, they were very upset with US diplomats in Rome, uh, who they claimed were not providing you know, diplomatic cover and support. So they went public. Uh, they 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 created a uh, media campaign. They launched a media campaign and they mobilized the Texan congressional delegation. By the way, some uh, member Texan members of Congress, uh, uh, some congressmen were members of the Church, of the Church of Christ. So, uh, at least a couple of them. Uh, so it became a big political issue in the U.S. And of course, it became a big issue in the U.S.-Italian relations. And the Italian diplomats in Washington, they were terrified that it could you know, have a major impact on U.S.-Italian relations. Uh, some uh, uh, members of Congress called for the suspension of Marshall Plan 8 
to Italy as a consequence of this. And it was the beginning of a story which went on until the mid-1950s. And that's the story I'm going to tell. That's, that's great. So um, I, I'm curious how, how this chapter fits into those other chapters. But maybe before that, could you tell us... Uh, uh, what does this episode tell us about the post-war Italian state, um, both in terms of its religious identity as it tr- becomes sort of liberal state and almost an Anglo-Saxon model, and then also the post-war power dynamics um, of Italy in this new American-inflected mm. Europe? That's a long question to, to, to address. Uh, in ten words or less. <laughs> but uh, it's a story about Italy's sovereignty. In the U.S. in the Cold War, of course, it's a history of uh, of Italy uh, uh, being the the junior ally, the, the lesser ally in a very asymmetrical relationship with the new hegemon. Uh, it's a story of Italy being within uh, uh, Atlantic U.S. centric economic security sphere and how that affected its sovereignty uh, once again but it's also the history of an, of an Italy which is basically disappearing uh, waning uh, and that's visible in basically the the historical reaction of the Catholic Church vis-a-vis a threat uh, that posed by the Texan missionaries which was mostly imaginary at the end the mission failed completely the orphanage was closed uh, uh, and basically uh, Gerald Payden left Italy in the mid-1950s the others uh, stayed a bit longer the Church of Christ never established a solid foothold uh, in the peninsula but at the same time at the same time the influence the I'd say the cult broader cultural influence of the Catholic Church was also disappearing. Uh, So it's a story of how Italy was changing, modernizing, entering a society of mass consumption which was bound to shape uh, uh, basically uh, 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 its uh, its face. Uh, Broadly, more broadly speaking, and that's basically the main goal of the book, it's a story about the Cold War as a system Italy in the Cold War, but how the Cold War was lived on the ground by looking at the agency and role of these you know, individuals who came to Italy as a consequence, as part of this Cold War early American vanguard and who presented uh, uh, their mission, their role often in Cold War terms. They found in the Cold War the justification for doing what they were doing or for asking the U.S. government to support what they were doing. So on, on that note, I, one thing that came across in, in, in the chapter was that um, anti-communist rhetoric was used um, by both sides in sort of different ways. So could you tell us more about this and the connection between communists and the American Church of Christ missionaries? That's possibly the most one of the most interesting aspects uh, uh, of, of the story in itself and especially of the first uh, part of the story um, in a nutshell uh, uh, the Catholic Church was co-opted into you know this broader Christian struggle against atheist uh, communism and the Soviet Union uh, Truman President Truman was uh, very supportive of the idea of having you know, a broad Christian anti-communist front, which included 
also the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was at the forefront of the electoral campaign of 1948, which led to the defeat of the communist and the pro-Soviet forces in Italy. But creating a broad Christian front meant somehow bridging the division, the antagonism, the clash between the Protestants and the Catholics, which in the case of the US was immensely complicated. Long story short, uh, our Texan evangelicals did not want to play the Cold War playbook, to abide by the Cold War playbook. Uh, they considered the Catholic Church uh, a danger at the same level, if not worse, uh, of the danger posed by communism, or more precisely, they read and interpreted success of communism in Italy as a consequence of the Catholic oppression. So they justified the communist in Italy, they justified what was a reaction against this Catholic op oppression, and they were willing, sometimes even eager, to accept communists uh, uh, within their ranks. Actually, the, the lawyer who provided legal assistance uh, Rosa Pepe, he was affiliated with the Italian Communist Party. But I think, this, I think that's one of the most fascinating things. This played it, into it, the, the hands of, of, uh, of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the state of the Vatican, of the course, Italian Ministry yeah. of Interior, which could easily accuse the Texan evangelicals of being, you know, fellow travelers, crypto-communist, or naive on communism. That's the card which was constantly played, speaking of the Cold War playbook, that was the card constantly played by the enemies of the Texan evangelicals in, in Italy. Um, yeah, it's, it's just fascinating how it sort of undermines, um, um, subverts certain like very simplistic Cold War binaries. Hmm. Um, how, does, how does this fit into the broader story that um, Giuliani Camides tells of, of Vatican state formation and sort of um, the use of, of anti-communist um, rhetoric to sort of solidify its position in the Cold War and to, to sort of um, establish this alliance with the United States. Yeah, uh, is Julian, there any role at all? Oh uh, no, Julian is. Of, I mean, uh, I, I like her book a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, re research is excellent, but I'm not saying it's more conventional. But it it it, it tells in a very detailed way a story we are more familiar with. So this story, this kind of, you know, bottom-up uh, story, uh, this micro-history, because I like uh, to call it so, uh, more for the discussion we will be having at the seminar, um, kind of, you know, makes the picture a bit more opaque. Mm -hmm. it, it models uh, the picture uh, a, bi a bit. Uh, I do believe that if we work at the level of, you know, history of ideas, intellectual history, we see this kind of, you know, religious, Christian, Judeo-Christian convergence in the early Cold War. Yeah. Uh, and it does work well if we do intellectual history. Uh, this kind of, you know, micro-history uh, aiming at, you know, retrieving the agency role of neglected actors on the ground, it's a different kind of history which gives, you a, gives us a different perspective. Okay, well, uh, thank you so much. Thank you for, um, for talking with me. I have a few last questions, but I'm very much looking forward to, to, to how the book turns out. Um, so uh, a few questions um, unrelated to your work. Um, what's a book or article you've read in the last 12 months that, that really got you excited? Uh, well, a few, a few. 
I have to say I in- enjoy. I found it problematic or even wrong, but I enjoyed it a lot reading uh, Daniel Immerwolf's uh, How to Hide an Empire, which has steered a big debate, uh, even an intense debate among you know, historian, so, yeah. historians of U.S. foreign relations. I just reviewed it uh, for a roundtable. Uh, but it was, a, it was a wonderful read, a joy to read. Uh, I liked it a lot. And I, and I think it does achieve one of its objectives, which is to oblige us to obligate us to look at the U.S. empire from a different angle, a different perspective. And so in the Immervar-Kramer debate, um, I think one of the really key concepts um, is the idea of mainstream history. Yeah. Um, where do you come down? What is mainstream history and, 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 and why does it matter mm. more? And do you agree with, with Immervar's framing of what uh, mainstream history is? I do believe he goes a bit too far. Okay. Um, uh, I do believe there are so many you know, parts uh, in the book, uh, you know, reference, references to his grandmother, useful anecdotes, which I found not necessary, so to speak. I understand the, the rhetorical dimension of those, uh, uh, of those narrative choices. Uh, having said that, I think he has a point uh, uh, in basically arguing that it's not so much that we histo- professional historians are unable to reach uh, a broader public, which is certainly an issue, but it's also that more and more we have gone through a sort of you know, hyper-standardization or profession professionalization of the way we do research. We build our books and articles, the style we use, which uh, has made what we produce increasingly, you know, and excessively homogeneous. And that's too much of, too much of a mainstream story. The one, the way in which we write. Uh, and to me, that's a bit problematic. Uh, I do believe we, we, there is a canon, even a stylistic canon, just look at historical journals, that has become a bit too narrow, a bit too you know, self-referential, a bit, uh, a bit too close to diversity, so mm-hmm. to speak, and a bit too you know, disciplinary rigid. And that's one of the many paradoxes. We, we, we often you know, speak, use the rhetoric of you know, interdisciplinarity, interdisciplinary collaboration and so forth and so on, while we erect higher and higher disciplinary walls also and banally in the way we write, the style we use, you know, the canon we adhere to. So to me, Emir War is kind of provocative in challenging that mainstream, even stylistically. And that I liked okay. in the book. Uh, I like less sort of, you know, exceptionalist attitude to the study of US history, which made a sort of, you know, a vengeful comeback in his book. 
Okay, well, thank you. And uh, the, what's the most interesting place you've been for research? <laughs> I love Book Texas. Uh, <laughs> that's that's a joke. Eh? <laughs> uh, it's flat out there, so uh, flat. It's very flat. I last spring, last May, I was in Abilene, Texas, uh, uh, which is not the nicest uh, place in the globe, uh, so to speak. It makes you know Abilene, Kansas, look like Siena in, in comparison, or Cambridge, I guess. Uh, but but those were interesting places. I mean, I like working in small archives. Uh, I, I was the only researcher there. Uh, in Labok, I basically organized the archive the, the, mm. the, the, by convincing the Payton family to donate uh, uh, the papers. Um, so I like working in small archives. Uh, one of the best archives in a very beautiful place is the archive of the Waldensian Church uh, in Torre Pellice, where I was welcomed with you know cookies and cappuccino and wow. uh, and spent two very civilized <laughs> highly okay. civilized archive yeah. so those were interesting places okay. yes and last question what's yeah. your favorite album you mean music yeah uh, <laughs> oh god that's a difficult one there are many even because you know music is connected to you know personal experience um i'd say Zeniata uh, Mondata, 1980, Police. Uh, even because it was the very first album I purchased by myself. I was 10 oh, of, at was the time. Was it on a cassette or was it? It was a cassette, actually. Cassette. It was a cassette, yeah. of course. 1980 was a cassette. And that's what? The second or third released, album released by the Police. Uh, that's a good one. And more recently, I love Ray La Montagne, so Trouble. 2004, but there are many, yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Mario. And, it was a pleasure. Uh, look forward to seeing how the book turns out. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Cambridge American History Seminar Podcast with Mario Del Perro and Christopher Schaefer. Unless something drastically changes in the next week, we'll be back in late April with another interview from another pr- presenter at our seminar. In the meantime, let your friends know about what we're doing here. Give us a rating and a review wherever you do that sort of thing. Follow us on Twitter at Camericanist and get in touch with us if you've got feedback, suggestions or anything else you'd like to say about future or past episodes. Cheers.